Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today we discuss the Indonesian military's role in the country's COVID-19 response. The prominent role of active and retired officers of the Indonesian military, or TNI, has been widely noted, with Lieutenant General Donny Manado serving as the head of Indonesia's COVID-19 task force, the Chief of Staff of the Army, General Andika Pakasa, serving as Deputy Head of a new COVID-19 Handling and National Economic Recovery Committee, in addition to the various retired officers occupying positions within the palace and the cabinet. How has the involvement of the military shaped Indonesia's COVID response, and has TNI's role in countering the pandemic altered the balance of civil-military relations? How also is President Jokowi likely to manage relations with the military for the remainder of his term, as the retirement of current TNI Commander Air Chief Marshal Hadi Chayanto looms in 2021? To discuss these questions, I'm joined this week by Dr Evan Luxmana, Senior Researcher in the Department of International Relations at CSIS Indonesia, a prominent scholar on the military. Evan, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And could I start by asking you to set out what has been the role of the Indonesian military in Indonesia's COVID-19 response? I think right now the role has has to be separated between the institutional role of the TNI, which is the involvement of military units, personnel, and officers, versus the involvement of key figures from the TNI as well as retired officers in shaping the broader national policy on, on COVID management. On the institutional side of things, I think the TNI as a whole has largely been involved as a partner to the police uh, in supporting local government policies, whether it's lockdowns or public information and so forth. And at the broader level, the involvement of key individuals from the TNI, as well as uh, retired officers, I think have been broader since the beginning uh, in maybe March or February, in which they shaped how the government overall handles transparency, how the government handles management of key policies and, and execution of those policies. So right now, for me, I think the bigger role is probably on the individual side of things rather than the institutional side of things. Okay. And why do you think it's turned out that way, that it's been particular individuals who have played the more significant role? I think, to be honest, the capacity of the TNI uh, to provide a larger role beyond supporting existing policies like lockdowns and stuff, the health capacity of the TNI isn't really that large in terms of the health battalions, the doctors, the hospitals. So they also have limited capacity in terms of trying to shape the larger policies. So what they do uh, largely is just take directives from the president and from the top on how to support uh, local and, and national policies. The individuals, I think it's because from the beginning, 
uh, during the election and, and, and after the election last year, I think the role of uh, retired officers, both police and military, I think have been increased compared to the 2014 election. So Jokowi has even relied more on retired officers during the campaign and afterwards. So I think the growing presence of key individuals in his cabinet, both at the top as well as at the second level of the cabinet, kind of puts key retired officers uh, a lot closer to Jokowi than uh, his previous term. And uh, I mean, amongst those retired officers, and of course, we've also seen an active officer in the Chief of Staff of the Army, Andika Picasso, being appointed to a senior position in the COVID response just recently. Who have been the most important individuals amongst those retired or active officers in shaping Indonesia's COVID response? I think at the beginning, the coordinating minister for maritime and investment, as well as the health minister, obviously, a retired general and medical doctor, Terawan, I think these two were perhaps the most influential at the beginning of the COVID response. I think over time, at least in the past month or two, I think the government is sort of shifting gear more towards the economy, which is why you see the larger role of the uh, state-owned enterprise minister, Eric Tohir, and why they create a new quasi-recovery task force to not necessarily replace the old task force under Doni Munardo, which is the head of the National Disaster Management Agency, uh, as well as the head of the task force to deal with COVID-19, which was created separately from the health minister's duties. So I think these two, plus Doni Munardo, who is still active, he hasn't retired yet, I think would probably safe to say these three uh, senior officers, I think, uh, were very much shaping the government's policies. Right now, I think we're moving a little bit closer to the economic realm rather than the health realm. And I mean, when you look at those three officers, Lohut Panjaitan in the coordinating maritime role, Tarawan as the health minister and Donny Manado as the head of the disaster management agency and and then heading up the COVID task force, any of those people could easily have been civilians occupying any of those roles. Those Those are not positions within the military hierarchy. Have we seen a more security-oriented approach because it has been retired and active military officers who've been occupying those roles? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that these are easily civilian positions. In fact, the health minister has always been traditionally somebody from the health profession, whether it's a medical doctor or a key civilian officer from the health ministry. So yes, these are all traditionally reserved for civilians. And I think as a consequence of the presence of retired and and, and active duty officers. I think there is, to a large extent, a more securitized approach. But what we need to separate, I think, is the securitized approach in terms of crisis management versus the securitized approach in terms of implementing those policies. In the beginning, I think the securitized approach was very much present in how the government withheld information, for example, which Shokowi himself acknowledged a few months back that he was deliberately withholding information because he feared it would cause unnecessary ruckus or, or, or instability. So this, this notion that information is a strategic asset to be protected rather than uh, clearly communicated to the public, I think is one key indicator that there was a securitized approach to how the government handled COVID at the beginning. When it comes to the implementation, the appointment of the army chief uh, you mentioned earlier to the recovery 
task force has been justified in the last few days because the government needed to have more disciplined enforcement of the government's policies, whether it's about health protocols or localized lockdowns. And that, I think, is where the potential trouble could lie, because if somewhere down the line in their capacity of assisting the local government, military officers deployed to enforce health protocols are involved in sort of potential clashes or friction with the local communities, what happens then? Are we going to see some sort of a wider crackdown on local activism or local community leaders? We don't know yet, but I think the government believes that they need the military to enforce these health protocols with strong discipline. So we'll see what happens, but I think the problem at the beginning has to do with this, with the securitization of crisis management. And now if things are not improving, we might see the problem in the securitization of the enforcement of existing health protocols. On that issue of health protocols, if I'm not mistaken, this stems from a new presidential instruction that Jokowi has issued just in the last few days. Is that right? Could you talk us through, does that presidential instruction significantly alter the role of the military in enforcing, as you say, health protocols, or is this something they've actually been doing throughout the COVID crisis? So uh, if it's about the particular role of the military, the larger context is the fact that we actually do not have an existing legal regulations or law that allows the uh, the military to have a broader role in pandemic management because the so-called military operations other than war that was mandated by the TNI law of 2004 had a list of duties and, and tasks allowed and prescribed under that law and none of it includes health management. There's an aspect of natural disaster management and humanitarian assistance uh, within that law but there's no clear, explicit uh, duties with regards to health management. And this is tricky because at the beginning of COVID, the National Disaster Management Agency declared COVID to be a non-natural disaster. Non-natural disaster has no language or position within the existing TNI laws. So as a consequence, when the president wanted to involve the TNI and to give them a larger role in supporting national and local government efforts to crack down on COVID, they have to create new bases in the legal system. So the presidential instruction that you mentioned, number six of 2010, issued a couple of days ago, I think is essentially a continuation of the several presidential instructions and decisions issued over the course of the last two, three months that allowed the military to have a larger role in COVID-19. So in that sense, I think the presidential instruction of the last few weeks or, or the last few days actually is not new. It's, it's merely a reiteration of an already revised legal basis for the TNI to play a role in COVID management. And that instruction, uh, number six of 2020, it also regulates the role of the police and the other institutions. So for me, this is merely a reiteration of a new policy that would give the TNI some legal justification to play a larger role with COVID management. Now, whether or not, as it was originally uh, discussed about two, three months ago, this will lead to a revision of the TNI law altogether. This is something that that remains to be seen. But the legal logic for me is is, is slightly confusing because as I understood it, um, if it's a national law, the subset of legal regulations, whether it's the presidential directives, instruction, or government regulation, should not contradict the larger law. 
So I think at some point, if the role of the military in COVID management were to be expanded even further and more institutionalized, I do think at some point we need to uh, discuss the idea about revising the TI-9 law altogether. Uh, and I mean, given that the involvement of the military maybe then is, could we say, running ahead of, of what existing legislation might allow for, and this has been covered through these various other regulations that you mentioned, has there been any controversy within Indonesia at all about the use of the military in the response to COVID-19? I think there's been a lot of criticism about the use of the military. One that's most obviously being voiced by the public and, and civil society activists is why the military and not public health experts? Because we have always felt that since the beginning of the crisis, the role of scientists and public health experts and medical experts seems to be put aside. And uh, this over-reliance on the security forces rather than uh, public health experts have raised all kinds of criticisms. And we're worried as well because this notion that we have to do what is necessary and therefore return to the TNI, I think that also signals both the weakening uh, of civil society groups and political pressure, but also this realization, I guess, by the civilian authorities that they don't have enough of a strong civilian institutions to handle major crises. So once again, they rely on the military. So I think there's a larger criticism about whether or not we are taking a few steps backwards to the late New Order period where for every public policy problem, we turn to the TNI. But when it comes to specific criticism about potential violence or conflicts, so far, that's still a relatively muted compared to the more obvious criticism about the lack of sciences and medical health experts in shaping the policy. And whether or not this is in line with a larger institutional push by the TNI to, to gain a larger role in public policymaking. But so far, I think that's still uh, where most of the criticism are about the larger role of the TNI. But we haven't really seen a good criticism or a debate about the specific effects of involving the TNI with regards to health outcomes. Do we see a worsening or an improving health indicators in some areas where the military is much more involved in shaping the policies and the execution versus others? We don't have a good sense yet of what the actual health-related outcomes have been. What we have are anecdotes that in some cases it works, in some cases it doesn't. I mean, do you have a sense of how the involvement of the military in Indonesia's COVID response sits regionally? Um, if we look at some of the other countries of Southeast Asia and the, the role that their militaries have played in their COVID-19 responses? I think it's slightly tricky because most other countries also rely some elements of their security forces, uh, depending on the size of the police forces. In some countries, they don't have enough police forces, so they deploy the military to enforce certain lockdown policies, for example. Uh, but in other cases, uh, the military provides more of a reserve or backup position to the police who, who does most of the, of the pandemic policing, I guess. So it, it, it varies. But I think if you look at the countries with a history like Indonesia, where the military has traditionally been involved in most aspects of politics and public policy, I think Indonesia's trend is somewhat worrying because I think there is a door that's being opened in which it is not that the military consistently and from the beginning 
wanting to push a larger role systematically across the board. I think it is the civilian side of things, the elected civilian politicians who have been inviting the military back into a larger role in public policymaking with regards to COVID. So for me, I think when it comes to the pandemic policing itself, I think it's not just the military and across the region. I think what we're doing is not exceptionally unique that the military shares a role with the police in enforcing lockdowns. But what is probably more unique and more disconcerting is the trend that we see a larger role of the military in public policy because of COVID. Sure, sure. And I mean, we've we've seen, you know, for instance, Professor Jun Honor at Ritsumeikan University arguing that the military has quite deliberately been making use of this COVID-19 situation to increase its role in civilian areas of government and to make some changes to the structure, its command structure or, or the structure of its deployment within Indonesia. What's your take on that sort of analysis? Do you think the, the military has seen COVID-19 as a situation to turn to its institutional advantage? I think some of these agendas were discussed and put forward before COVID. So to say that these are entirely new agendas that came out of because of COVID is not entirely accurate. But I do think the momentum of COVID in which the president in particular relies on the military to execute his his policies on COVID means that it is, I think, case that some of the old agendas like the counterterrorism issues or expanding the territorial command structure to accommodate those officers who don't have positions and jobs over the last few years. I think it is true that COVID-19 provided an additional momentum, if you will, in which uh, they can push this agenda forward. But I think it's not just that. I think every single old agendas that can be pushed forward, whether it's the omnibus law on labor or whether it's maritime uh, security laws, I think uh, TNI is not the only one that's pushing a pre-existing agenda because of COVID. But yes, I do see some merits in in Jun Hona's arguments that COVID has provided a, a good pretext or momentum to push a pre-existing agenda forward, uh, including um, a larger role in in counterterrorism as well as as well as expanding the TNI structure. But the push, the formulation, and and the agenda all started before COVID. I, I guess if I could push you just a little bit further on that issue, I mean, obviously, uh, you've written very frequently on the topic of civil military relations, on the topic of the corporate interests of the, the military in Indonesia. And sort of after last year's national elections, you had a piece in Asia Policy, I think, from memory, in, in which you argued that we were unlikely to see much difference in the way that Jokowi would manage civil military relations uh, in his second term in comparison to his first. Um, Could I draw you out a bit on that, uh, just to characterize what has been the way that Jokowi has managed his relations with the military? And does that judgment that there would be no change still hold after this, you know, really unexpected event of of the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, that piece was written uh, pre-COVID, obviously. And in that piece, I, I sort of argued that because of the way the election was done and the political polarization at that point, Choco is going to rely more on the military in his second term. I think after COVID, that has accelerated further and in fact expanded in terms of its reliance. So things have changed, but not necessarily for the better in that sense. I think uh, Jokowi thought that he could 
get started on his economic agenda and and domestic agenda. And in his second term, then COVID sort of took over. And his first instinct was was obviously to rely more uh, on the military, whether it's a set of retired officers or relying on the TNI as an institution to execute his policy. So I think the tilt towards the reliance on the military, both at an institutional and personal level, I think has grown since COVID. The issue also that I think it's a bit harder to maintain now, precisely because of that increasing reliance, is the balance or the management between the police and the military. Because while we haven't seen serious violent conflicts between the military and police in recent years, I think uh, the undercurrent of tension between the police and the military remains uh, in 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 Indonesia today. And there are concerns by members of the police, for example, that Jokowi's reliance on the military is not good for their corporate interests. But members of the military would say the re- uh, the reverse, right? That Jokowi's over-reliance on the police throughout his first term and now in his second term will, will be bad for the TNS corporate interests. So I think both sides, the police and the military, are also vying to protect their corporate interests. And I think Jokowi's a careful balance and management of this relationship will be the key, I think, to understand to what extent uh, will we see more conflictual or or destabilizing dynamics in civil and military relations after COVID. I mean, is that the biggest problem that uh, an additional reliance on the military creates for Jokowi, an intensified rivalry between the police and the military, or, or are there other problems that he and his administration will face as a result of relying more heavily on, on the military for policy formulation and execution? That's not the only one, obviously. Right now, I think when it comes to civil-military relations, another agenda that's going to be tricky has to do with the defense budget. I think uh, just recently it was announced that the defense ministry will get about 130 trillion rupiah, which is still among the highest, if not the highest budget this year for any ministry. But we still look at the fact that most of that budget goes to personnel and operations, including COVID management. So I think maintaining corporate interests in this sense by making sure that the defense budget doesn't plummet too bad, that we can still rely on the military to be deployed to assist with COVID management in whatever form that we might need, I think will be a key. But the problem is, of course, that the defense ministry also before COVID has been planning to obtain and procure new advanced weaponry, which is why we see the defense minister over the last six months traveling overseas quite frequently to find new suppliers. So this uh, budgetary pressure between maintaining corporate interests with regards to personnel salaries, health benefits, COVID operations support versus high-end equipment and procurement, I think, will be uh, very tricky for the government to manage because the economy is in, in horrible shape and we're likely to be for the next one or two years. So this is, I think, another key problem within the next one or two years. Hearing you draw the defense ministry into conversation there, of, of course, one of the great surprises of Jokowi's second term has been his appointment of his defeated presidential rival, Prabowo Subianto, to the position of defense minister. 
I guess Prabowo has now been in that role for the best part of 10 months. Have we started to get a sense of what his effect is likely to be on the position of the military and civil military relations uh, as defense minister? Right now, there's two lines of, of development that I think it's worth noting. One, from a political standpoint, I think his relationship with the president is relatively good at this time in events, in meetings, in speeches. He always makes sure that he he praises Jokowi. He says how happy he is to serve under his command, how he supports Jokowi and all that. So I think from that standpoint, there's no potential problems just yet between the defense minister and the president. Uh, the second line of development has to do with his own defense policies as defense minister. And this involves his relationship with the TNI headquarters because on the issue of procurement, for example, most of the items that the military wants to buy is usually determined by the TNI headquarters. And the Defense Ministry then proposes that budget to the national legislature. But now I think the dynamics is, is, is slightly different in which the Defense Ministry, under him, he wants to set the, the terms of, of procurement, whether it's the type of weaponry we have to buy and when, and what kind of suppliers uh, we should turn to. So I think there's a more active role from the defense ministry in comparison to his predecessor uh, under Prabowo when it comes to procurement. And in fact, I think the broader defense policy issues, whether it's crafting a new white paper, whether it's defense diplomacy or institutional reform, I think that's been sort of set aside at the expense of, of the larger issues that we haven't really completed and reformed. So I think the two big agendas that's been in the books for the past eight months or so, I think one is, as I said earlier, which is the procurement of new weaponry. I think there is this notion that it would be nice if it's under Prabowo that SBYs, the previous president's minimum essential force concept would be deemed as complete. So he wants to create a new long-term strategic planning and procurement blueprint for the next 25 years. So that's why he, he travels a lot. The second big ticket agenda, I think, is the creation of a reserve component. So these are civilians who are supposed to register, and then uh, if they are registered and, and selected, they will become uh, reserve components. This is based on the new law that we passed uh, late last year on the National uh, Resource Management I think for the first plan is about to create about 25,000 of these reserve components. We're not clear yet when it comes to how they're going to be recruited, who's in charge of the training, how are they going to be housed during the basic military training and all that. But I think that uh, remains within the agenda. And I think the, the details about who to run it, how to pay for it is still being worked out. But the decision has been made to to create this this reserve component of 25,000 people within the next one or two years. So these are, so far, the two big-ticket agenda. But there's no uh, long-term strategic blueprint or official documents yet about what's next. Do you have a sense of, you know, is Prabowo as a retired general on the same page as the actual TNI command? You know, what's his personal relationship like with the TNI commander Hadi Chayanto and with the, the heads of the different services? I think if we look at the broader relationship between the defense minister and the TNI, and we look at the last two defense ministers before Prabowo, which is Pak Purnomo Yusgiantoro under SBY second term, and then Pak Ariam Rizard in Jokowi's first term, I think uh, Prabowo is certainly different. 
He certainly brings more energy, more proactive drive to shape policies and to obtain key corporate interests of the military, like procurement and all that. So I think the TNI is readjusting itself to deal with a more assertive and proactive defense minister. But as far as I can see, uh, as long as the defense ministry continues to push forward some of the big ticket items like procurement, I think the relationship remains quite stable. The problem, I think, can show up in the future or or perhaps uh, sooner rather than later is what happens when Prabowo or the defense ministry's vision for certain types of procurements and planning are not in line with the TNI headquarters. For example, there has been discussions about what kind of procurement can we do when we have limited budget during COVID? Should we consider issues like interim readiness by obtaining used uh, weaponry, or should we still push for new weaponries altogether? And I think these are some of the debates that are ongoing. But as far as I can tell, uh, because Prabowo also brought in his own team into the defense ministry, uh, I think he is also using that team as a bridge to the TNI leadership. So I think so far, as far as we can see, the relationship remains stable. There are differences, I think, with regards to key policy issues on procurement and all that. But I do think right now they're still quite within normal and, and expected bounds at this point. On that topic of the military's leadership, uh, I mean, you've written previously that Jokowi's relations with the military really improved with the appointment of Hadi Chayanto replacing, shall we say, politically active Gatot Numantyo as TNI commander. I understand Hadi Chayanto is, is scheduled to retire in 2021. Is, is that right? Is he expected to serve through to that point? And, and do we have any sense at the moment of what succession might look like and whether that will present a problem for Jokowi? Um, yeah, he is scheduled to retire in 2021. If I'm not wrong, I think Hadi's birthday is in November, and he was born in 63. So the mandatory retirement age of 58 should kick in sometime in November next year. But usually what happens is it's normal for the succession plan to be discussed between three to six months before uh, the official mandatory uh, retirement age kicks in. So it's possible that a, a change of TNI commander takes place within the next year or maybe less depending on the political situation. So if he retires, the natural contender for the new TNI commander can only come from either the army or the navy because of this norm that it has to be rotated from the three services who gets to be the TNI commander. Right now, the chief of staff of the navy is 54. So he has about four years down the line. The chief of the army, uh, Andika Prakasa, is about 55, so he has about three years down the line. And the chief of the Air Force is about 54, so he has about four years down the line. So on paper, both the Navy chief and the Army chief have equal opportunity to become the next tenant commander. But as I understood it, many members of the political elite seems to prefer that whoever becomes TNI commander during the election in 2024 and presumably six months or one year before the election, which makes it 2023, that it should be somebody from the army. Because the expectation is that if you're a TNI commander and you're from the army, you have a better sense of the local and the national political dynamics so that you can have a safe and successful election. 
So if that's what some of the political elites want, uh, which is to have an army guy as the TNI commander in 2023 or 2024, then it is more likely that Hadi's replacement this year or next year would come from the Navy. And this would be Ayudo Margono, which is the Navy chief of staff. If that's the case, then we might have somebody from the army as TNI commander in 2023. So it's fair to assume that at any given administration, you will have at least two or maybe even three different TNI commanders because usually one TNI commander position is roughly between one or up until three years. It's very rare that you become a TNI commander for four or five years. So it's it's normal. And, you know, that, that's a fascinating rationale for, for why it may the next TNI commander may fall to the Navy. Of course, the current chief of staff of the army is politically connected. Uh, I believe is the son-in-law of Hendro Priono, this former intelligence chief who, who of course, is close to PDIP, Jokowi's party. Does that make a difference to that sort of rationale that you, you've set out there and his prospects of becoming TNI commander at some point? Well, I think there's two sets of issues. One, I think COVID, to some extent, has also inserted an extra a merit badge, if you will. Like, you know, if you are a key leader or a key commander during COVID management, how successful were you as a TNI commander? So the current Navy chief, uh, Yudo Margono, before he became the Navy chief, was the commander of the Regional Area Defense Command that handled some of the earlier COVID management in the Natunas, the transportation of Indonesians from China a few months ago, and the building of, of hospitals in various places to support COVID. So uh, Yudo Margono actually has quite a few accomplishments during COVID. So that's not something to be taken lightly, I think. Second is the political issues that you mentioned from Andika. I think, obviously, it's hard to deny his political influence beyond the TNI command structure because of his father-in-law. But I think if we were to assume that his father-in-law will continue to play a powerful political role down the line beyond just the current administration, then we have to consider what kind of political calculations are more dominant for 2024. Uh, Rather than trying to make your case now, you might want to make your case for 2024. So I think most political parties now, to some extent, have seen the Jokowi administration as a somewhat of a lame duck president. So everybody's thinking and, and logic now revolves around 2024. Within this larger political context, if hypothetically the current army chief does not become the TNI commander next year or, or, or this year, what does that mean for him? Will he retire his commission? Will he stay on as the army chief and have somebody junior then him become TNI commander, it's not entirely clear. So a lot depends on when and how Andika retires from the services. And I think precisely because of what you mentioned, that he has a strong political network, I think if Andika retires from the army, he would have a political career down the line and not just stop at the TNI. But as long as he is still within the military, I think he will be constrained by his positions, whether as as army chief or as TNI commander. Sure, sure. Now, Evan, there's a lot more I could ask you, and and it's been a fascinating tour through a whole range of of issues today, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. So thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia to share your insights today. It's been great. Thanks for having me, Dave. Appreciate it. 
That was Dr. Evan Laksmana, Senior Researcher in the Department of International Relations at CSIS Indonesia. Talking Indonesia returns on 27 August with my co-host Dr. Dirk Thompson. Until then, you can access the entire archive of Talking Indonesia episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, though, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.